G'day, Emmy McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, worker stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Stick Together is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation. With the Omicron variant of COVID spreading like wildfire across the most populous states in Australia, instead of a coherent plan of action coming from the federal government, the Prime Minister has been doing a lot of let it be so, as if he is an emperor in fairyland reducing the time for isolation for COVID-positive workers, designated as essential, and even altering the definition of close contact and insisting that essential workers, nurses, truck drivers, supermarket workers and meat workers who are COVID-positive and asymptomatic should be allowed to go back to work. Now, the problem with let it be so pronouncements is that it doesn't deal with the health risks or the labour shortages. In today's program, we talked to Liam O'Brien, Assistant Secretary at the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, after the National Secretaries of Unions meeting held to discuss what actions will be taken to deal with the federal government's non-plan to bring Australians out of the COVID help emergency. We follow up with a chat with Jared Hayes, who's the president of the Health Services Union, about what's happening for aged care workers, and Helen Gibson, United Workers Union's Education Director, about how early childhood educators at childcare centres are faring. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. On Monday the 10th of January, Prime Minister Morrison had a closed-door meeting with business representatives about how to deal with COVID. The meetings excluded workers and their representatives. The following Monday, the ACTU called an emergency meeting with unions to discuss what workers need to do to protect themselves from the rash decisions coming out of the first meeting that pushed aside workers' health and safety concerns. I spoke to Liam O'Brien, Assistant Secretary at the ACTU, after this meeting. What's really unfortunate about the latest wave of Omicron is that the Morrison government, unlike at the start of the pandemic, where they engaged with unions and businesses to keep workplaces safe and the country open and moving, now seems to be exclusively talking to bosses. And that means that the work health and safety issues that are being faced by workers are not getting any attention. And that's why we're seeing skyrocketing cases in workplaces not just because of the lack of consultation, but again, because of the Morrison government's failure when it comes to sourcing the really critical tools that workplaces need, like rapid antigen tests. With the rapid antigen tests, it would be quite a a useful idea if we actually produced them ourselves in Australia. So Australian companies were some of the first in the world to produce COVID rapid antigen tests. And unfortunately, again, the government's failure when it comes to domestic manufacturing capability really meant that many of those companies had to go offshore to be able to sell their product. So we've got manufacturers in this country who we can't get to supply in Australia because they are now too busy producing for other countries like North America and in Europe. 
So there's a, a, a clear lack of planning or foresight? Look, luck has been too often the case when it comes to the pandemic and the federal government, whether it be in relation to quarantine or in relation to vaccine. We're now seeing in relation to rapid tests, the government's failure to plan for this phase. Unions were warning the government, along with business and doctors groups and health experts, that you need to get on top of these rapid antigen tests months ago. And had we done that, we would have been able to stem and hold back the rapid rise of infections, which now see us amongst the world leaders when it comes to infection rates on a per capita basis. But the Morrison government has again just failed. And what we're now seeing in critical essential workplaces, supply chains and so on, is that workers who are close contacts being returned to the workplace despite, in ordinary circumstances, them being required to isolate. This is just going to insert more risk to workers' health than anything before. We can't have a healthy economy unless we've got healthy people. And sending sick people to work is a slippery slope to further crippling our supply chains. I went to the supermarket uh, a couple of days ago. There was very little selection in meat. Uh, the ACPU were the first to bring to people's attention, or actually it was the workers who were at one of the abattoirs in South Australia who brought to the attention that uh, uh, people were being differentiated by the colour hairnet that they were wearing. Can you talk about this? Yeah, look, this is really disgraceful behaviour and what we fear is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to some rogue employers and the way in which they're managing COVID. You know, what we saw in that Meatworks was workers who were positive being sent back into the workplace with yellow hairnets so that workers could differentiate them from those that are not positive. The simple point is no worker should be going to work positive and employers should be doing everything they can to make workplaces safe. And that includes supporting workers to isolate if they are either sick or indeed if they are a close contact. Because the federal government seems to want to bypass uh, the workforce in any of its planning, is there a, a thing that the ACTU sees as being a potential way of coming to a cogent plan? So today, national secretaries from all of our unions met. We resolved that just because the federal government has failed to provide free and accessible access to rapid antigen tests does not mean that we should not be forcing them into every workplace. And every worker has a right to a safe and healthy workplace, including one that manages COVID risks. That means every employer has a legal obligation to do everything that is reasonable to managing COVID. And that means, where appropriate, introducing rapid testing. So because Morrison has failed the community so badly when it comes to rapid testing, he is now just shifting this cost onto employers who will be legally obliged to introduce rapid testing programs in many workplaces across the country. The federal government needs to stand up and provide free rapid tests all workers so that we can break these chains of transmission and keep our workplaces safe. What's interesting is Scott Morrison has one of the safest workplaces in the country. He and his ministers are provided with free taxpayer-funded rapid tests whenever they want. That is the way in which we keep workplaces safe. That is how collectively Australia keeps workplaces and the community safe. But because Scott Morrison is failing to do his most basic of tasks in protecting us, it now falls to individual workers at workplaces to do it. 
So what we know is that unions will continue to fight to make sure that work is safe. And that means we will be fighting workplace by workplace, industry by industry, to ensure that workers have access to these critical tools that keep COVID out of their workplaces. The other issue, of course, is that when people are COVID um, positive and do need to uh, take uh, time out, and of course it relates to their families and their friends as well, uh, we're talking about a need for some sort of uh, financial support, aren't we? Yes, yeah, so we've been fighting to ensure that the pay pen and leave arrangements of the movement won over a year and a half ago are available to all workers who are close contacts. Just because Scott Morrison has decided that close contact is only somebody who's exposed in the home doesn't mean that there aren't thousands, if not tens of thousands of workers across the country who are being forced to isolate and are not getting any pay. We need to make sure that paid pandemic leave is available to any worker who is unable to earn an income because they've either been exposed or indeed have contracted COVID. Now, the workplace health and safety arrangements in Australia are the thing that have been the way of trying to maintain conditions at workplaces. If the government was able to blow that safety fence down, that would be a very, not just dangerous, but very frightening situation, wouldn't it? Well, that is exactly what we have faced over the last 10 days. Ever since Scott Morrison stood up at National Cabinet 10 days ago and announced that he was going to fight to water down our work health and safety laws, unions and some state governments have been on a war footing to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so far, we've been successful. The Morrison government has attempted to water down our workplace health and safety rights such that employers wouldn't be provide, required to provide the best possible protections in workplaces. This is a real concern. We've seen the Morrison government at various points in the pandemic try to water down work health and safety laws, and we're seeing it again with regards to the requirement now to send back potentially sick workers. We need to fight against that. You're right. Our work health and safety laws and the way in which unions have protected people in workplaces has been a standout feature of the way in which Australia has managed the pandemic. And we need to um, keep the pressure up, especially as we see soaring infection rates across the community. We will continue to fight to make sure that Scott Morrison does his job. We must see free and accessible rapid testing in this country. It is the most effective tool at managing this next most infectious strain of the virus. We'll also be fighting in workplaces to ensure that workplaces have the highest possible standards of health and safety, whether that be rapid testing or increased mask wearing, including N95s. In an interesting way, this is a, a test for the government itself and its effectiveness. I mean, it's been quoted that he said, Morrison said that it's time for government to step back, but in actual fact, it's time for government to step up, isn't it? I mean, a few phrases from Scott Morrison over the last few months. My personal favourite has been this, don't do governments versus can-do capitalism. And we're really seeing that come to the fore. Unfortunately, we didn't really anticipate Scott Morrison running a don't do government. We need governments that are going to do their job. And in particular, the most fundamental job that governments have is keeping people safe. That's what needs to happen right now.
Um, capitalism is one thing, but uh, free reign, uh, the idea that the entire society is run by a free market uh, has been really put to the test by a pandemic, hasn't it? Absolutely, and turned on its head. I mean, it is free markets that are failing us right now in terms of supply chains. It's free markets that are failing us right now when it comes to accessing rapid testing. We need governments to step in in these times. It's governments that can assist us in getting us through this pandemic, just like it has at every other stage through the pandemic. We need Scott Morrison and his government to do their job. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. Jared Hayes is the president of the Health Services Union, whose members in aged care facilities around the country are doing it tough. Although since the interview, it has just been announced that three million rapid antigen tests have been released to Victorian healthcare staff, there are many more issues besetting the sector. This is what Jared had to say. I'm really concerned, and I've been concerned for a long time, that um, while the Omicron variant has obviously made things far more transmissible, uh, aged care has been subject to significant issues uh, for many years. Uh, the Royal Commission identified workforce as a significant issue. Now we are seeing people leave the aged care workforce and indeed people being uh, isolated so clearly there is immense strain on the aged care workforce and indeed that will ultimately reflect onto the most vulnerable, the aged care residents. Now with the pandemic, we're seeing organisations extend their shifts to um, maximise their workforce. Uh, some of those shifts are 12-hour shifts. Um, some people are now doing 16-hour shifts. Now, the facilities and the workers are doing everything they can but um, there is a workforce crisis. There has been for a long time. And now this is an absolute disaster in the making. Uh, the government will say there's a surge of workforce and there is not. Uh, and now we're seeing people start to leave because they're exhausted and burnt out. You're calling it the Omnicom let it rip approach. Now that means the federal government, which is actually in charge of this area, is really unprepared. Federal government has always shown that they don't understand aged care. They have not applied one strategy in good time to prevent uh, problems in aged care. So whether it was the initial rollout of the vaccines, whether it was the um, COVID getting into aged care facilities, bearing in mind the highest mortality rate uh, of COVID has been in aged care. And now we're seeing boosters getting rolled out and yet uh, aged care staff and workers are not receiving those boosters uh, at the work site unless there's some left over. So this is a reactionary approach to aged care, not a proactive approach. And my fear is, and my fear is being realised, that more and more people are leaving the aged care industry. There is a competitive workforce requirement now, so uh, people can go to hospitality or go to other sectors, get paid considerably more. And so, uh, unfortunately, they're leaving. But that puts our most vulnerable in a very precarious situation. Now, philosophically, the federal government has continually used the notion that uh, putting money into aged care actually means uh, giving money to private enterprise and then leaving it to them to decide how it should be practically rolled out. This is actually an uh, abrogation of government role in society. This is absolutely an abdication of their responsibilities, totally. 
Uh, it's not about making um, private sector wealthy and treating aged care people as commodities. Uh, these are people who built this country. These are people who deserve our respect uh, to be able to be looked after in their ageing years. This is not an area for profiteering, and it certainly is an area for investment of government uh, to make sure that um, uh, people can be treated with dignity in their ageing uh, times. However, um, the workforce crisis, which we've been predicting for two years, is now established and how you get people to come and work for $21 and $22 an hour in part-time work, but that part-time work will be extensive hours and extensive physical and emotional strain when they can go and work for Bunnings or go and work in hospitality for Farmall. And now we're at the point where aged care workers are burnt out, aged care operators are trying to get agency staff and they can't, uh, an eight-hour shift's becoming a 16-hour shift, and $21 an hour is $21 an hour. Uh, the government knows clearly that to attract and retain workers, that there's got to be conditions and wages that will go hand in glove with that. Uh, they are not there, and now we're starting to see uh, what we uh, advise the government would happen happening, and that is people are leaving the workforce because they can't sit back and watch what's going on anymore because they actually care about uh, their residents and people in aged care but they can't take that on their own shoulders anymore. There's uh, been reported that 500 aged care facilities already have had outbreaks. Absolutely. And, you know, thankfully, the vaccines are doing their job. Two years ago, we saw two outbreaks in New South Wales and 25 people got in New South Wales. Now there's been over, well and truly over hundreds of outbreaks and that mortality rate has, has not been realised. So... That's a good thing, but that doesn't take away one person looking after 32 people. You know, the indignity that comes with that, the assistance that people need that they can't get, and the frustration and ultimately uh, the aged care worker leaving the workforce because they can't entertain it anymore themselves. Do we really care about aged care? And let's really talk about that because at the moment I hear a lot about bullet trains and nuclear submarines. I don't actually see any change for people in aged care. And these people don't have another 10 years to wait for change. This is an issue that comes on the back of a Royal Commission, which ventilated all the awful things that are occurring in aged care, a workforce that is leaving aged care, and an ageing population which will depend more on aged care. So we are looking down the barrel of a catastrophe that is certainly um, developed already, and yet the government still doesn't prioritise this as a, a a real need to be dealt with in 2022. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. At the other end of the timeline, the early childhood educators are also finding that they are having to fight to be heard while the federal government makes pronouncements without seeming to be aware of the realities on the ground. I spoke to Helen Gibbons from the United Workers' Union for an insight into the concerns of these workers. Early education is having a really hard time and have been having a really hard time for nearly two years now. Young children uh, can't be vaccinated and they also can't socially distance. You can't uh, care for a baby or for a toddler and expect them to stay 1.5 metres away from you. That means that early educators every day are taking risk. Um, they're going into work and they're caring and educating the community's children. But they're doing at great 
personal risk to themselves and to their own families. Uh, they're having to manage that risk and be as careful as possible and you know, put in a whole bunch of safety procedures, but it comes with a whole bunch of anxiety as well, um, especially during this latest surge where so many of our community has COVID and COVID is coming into centres. Is it true that uh, early educators aren't defined as and recognised as frontline essential workers? Well, it sort of is and it sort of isn't. It depends which politician is talking. They'll refer to early educators as essential and as frontline workers when they want to uh, say empty words, to be honest. They, they'll say it, um, but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that they deliver anything different for early educators. Um, they're not delivering freely available um, rapid antigen tests for early educators. Uh, they are not um, putting anything in place that's any different for any other worker to protect early educators. So it depends which politician is speaking and what the PR spin is, but to be honest, it's sort of meaningless. There are five issues of concern, particular concern at the moment for uh, early educators, aren't there? And uh, UWU have been pushing forward on these particular issues. Do you want to go through the five issues? Well, the first one is uh, to reflect on what you've just asked me about, which is early educators as essential frontline workers. And rather than saying it in a meaningless way, recognise them consistently across the country as essential frontline workers. Uh, and with that comes a, a whole bunch of respect and recognition um, and support. So I think that's the first thing that needs to happen. The second one is that there has to be freely available rapid antigen tests. Uh, early educators can't get them. Parents and children can't get them either. But early educators are going into work being exposed to uh, COVID, potentially exposed to COVID, and have no way of testing that and making sure that they're safe. And they're not just anxious for their own safety. They're anxious for the children that they care for as well. It's in everybody's interest that they have access to tests. The next thing that is really essential is that the definition of close contact has to include close contact at work. At the moment, in some states, in most states, close contact is only defined as home or home-like environments, and early education is not included in that, which means that you can spend 10 hours with an infected baby and you're not um, defined as a close contact, which means you get none of the support available to close contacts, uh, including not being able to access rapid antigen tests. Um, uh, you're expected to just keep working, and that's not good for children, it's not good for the educator, and it's not good for the wider community. final one is um, that the educators, where necessary, need access to booster shots and need to be prioritised to get those booster shots including prioritised by their employers, giving them paid time to go and get their booster shots. There is also the issue of uh, financial support if they have to isolate. And also there's the broader issue of centres that need to close for periods because of staff shortages to have access to financial support. I mean, this is being realistic, isn't it? Yes, and that's a really good point. Thank you for raising that. I mean, the issue at the moment is that if centres close, they get no money from the government. So they don't get the parent subsidy and they don't get the parent fees either. So you can imagine that centres don't want to close. 
um, they're doing everything that they can to keep open. And that's really worrying. Um, centres that have a whole bunch of infections should be encouraged to close, not to stay open and continue to take risk. So the first thing is the centres need to know that if they do have to close because of infection or because of staff shortages, uh, that they'll be financially supported to do so. But similarly, educators need to be financially supported as well. If they have to isolate or if their centres have to close, then they need to make sure that they've got an income and there needs to be some financial recognition for that. It's interesting, isn't it? The uh, pandemic has really put into focus that uh, everything run on a privatisation basis and the need for the government to step up to protect society's interests and the health of uh, the public is really being uh, put into the limelight, isn't it? It's a really starkly exposed um, a number of things. One is how much we traditionally undervalue care work and the care sector, and yet when push comes to shove in the middle of a pandemic, uh, the world falls apart without the care sector stepping up. And you've seen that through healthcare, but also through education and early education and care. And invariably, or predominantly, that is women's work. Um, that is uh, people who uh, traditionally or historically have been women. It's also really shown how fragile early education is. It doesn't take much for early education to be on the brink of financial collapse. And that's because half of early education is uh, privatised and they are interested in making a profit. And if your motivation is to make a profit, you have a very different approach to the sort of services that you're providing. There's a really highly casualised workforce mostly part-time, very few full-time workers. You know, a lot of job insecurity and a lot of um, concern about uh, how reliable their income is. Well, of course, Big Steps has been going on for a long time, that campaign, and uh, more strength to your arm. We'll see more from in the future, won't we? Look, uh, early educators are persistent and resilient because uh, they know that if they can't convince the federal government to fund early education properly so that they can be paid properly, then that's not good for them, obviously, but it's not good for the wider community and it's certainly not good for children. And uh, early educators have been fighting a long time, but they're not going to give up and they're getting louder and stronger. And I think that the, there's been a lot of truly awful things that have come out of this pandemic, but the spotlight that the pandemic has um, shone on women workers and the care sector is an opportunity and I, I know that uh, the early educated members of United Workers Union will be seizing that opportunity. That's it for Stick Together this week. You can catch up with the show at 3cr.org.au or where you get your favourite podcasts. Contact us at sticktogether at 3cr.org.au. I'm Annie McLaughlin. Join the Stick Together team next week for more workers' news. And remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. And stay safe and stick together. Life is much too short to sit and wonder Who's gonna make the next move And we'll slowly pull you under
you've always got something to prove I don't want to wait a lifetime yours or mine yours or mine can't you see me reaching for the lifeline your lifeline your lifeline your lifeline the lifeline you say that I misheard you but I think you misspoke Hear you laugh so loudly while I patiently await the joke. I don't wanna wait a lifetime, not yours, not mine. Can't you see me reaching for the lifeline? The lifeline, the lifeline, your lifeline, your Your life. 